The title, my title, The Riddle of Ancient Sparta, Unwrapping an Enigma, some of you will instantly have recognised as being a sort of uh, quotation. That's to say it's a version of what Sir Winston Churchill once used as a way of referring to Soviet Russia. The Soviet Russia with which he had tangled right at its very origins. He'd tried to murder it in the cradle by sending troops in in 1918. And he had to cooperate, collaborate with it, with Joe Stalin in the Second War. He did so reluctantly because, of course, it went against every fibre of his being in all sorts of ways. And he referred to the Soviet Union, the Soviet Russia in particular, as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, all those, um, or the two key terms in that mystery and enigma, of course, ancient Greek words originally secret and something riddling. So it's um, pleonastic in a way. He's saying the same thing twice. But the point is this. If you thought very, very highly of the Soviet Union, what it stood for, what it had done in the Second War, maybe, just as an ally, then you perhaps had an over-rosy view of what life really was like in that society at any rate up to the 1950s. And in particular, you probably didn't know about the Moscow trials of 1936-1937. And you possibly didn't know about the attempted extermination of the Kulaks and so on. You thought only here was a society that had an ideal. It held up the worker as the hero, the ordinary person, not the elite. It aimed at equality. It aimed at abundance. And certainly it was better than the czar-ridden, aristocrat-ridden, imperial Russia, which it had uh, replaced. If, on the other hand, let's say you were uh, an extreme capitalist or you were an extreme libertarian, and you felt that the way in which the Soviet Union deprived lots of people of freedom caused major economic disasters and was in general something rather to be feared as potentially a world-conquering power, one that wanted to take over the world and especially your world, well, then you might be virulently anti the Soviet Union. It was very rare, I think, and very difficult to take a middling position, a sort of, well, it's got its good points as well as its bad points. Either people really hated it or they, they loved it by and large. And if they loved it, they were sometimes called uh, fellow travellers. They might be members of the uh, CPGB, the Communist Party of Great Britain, or France, or where all the Western countries which looked to the Soviet Union as offering an alternative to their, as they saw it, dreadful society. Well, suppose you're in ancient Greece. Go back to the 5th century BC. It's a very similar situation in terms of uh, attitudes to ancient Sparta on the part of non-Spartans. 
Like the Soviet Union, the Spartans did not welcome in visitors in general, foreigners in general, because they suspected that they might be enemy agents. They were a closed society. If you can believe the sources, they actually expelled foreigners periodically and as a regular routine thing. On the other hand, if you were a pro-Spartan, if you thought that Athens, for example, was a dreadful tyrant imperialist state, if you thought democracy, which is what I wrote my most recent book on, if you thought that the rule of the masses, the ordinary, ignorant, illiterate, possibly stupid, fickle people over the elite people like yourself, if you thought that that was what democracy was, then you might actually think, if only we could be more like Sparta, where, you know, top-down, it's a military kind of society. People know their place. Plus, they've got this brilliant system. They don't do any work, except fighting, um, which some of them find pleasant. And they've got these thousands of Greek underclass quasi-slaves to do the work for them. Look at it another way, and I'll come back to this. Um, even those who liked the thought of Sparta not being a democracy had a little pause given when they contemplated the role, status, respect and function of women in Sparta. We'll come back to that. As I came in, as I'm sure you all saw, Terrific emphasis on the centenary of uh, the vote being given to certain women in 1918, immediately after the, second, uh, the First World War. And so um, Spartans seemed to be rather lax in the way they did not control their women in the way that uh, in Athens they certainly did by various sorts of means. We can talk about this afterwards if, if you're interested. So, my point is this. When you study Sparta, you don't get an unmediated view. Very few Spartans ever wrote about their own society, um, to such an extent that some nasty Athenians said that all Spartans were illiterate, which is completely false, but you can see how the idea might um, develop. And so, what we are confronted with is this bifurcated tradition wildly pro, wildly anti, by and large very little in between. There are some in between, but very, very few. They're the minority of the extant sources. To such an extent that in the 1930s, a French scholar coined the expression le mirage spartiat. Now, some of you may remember a dreadful American uh, soap series in which there was a uh, hotel which they barbarously uh, dubbed la mirage. They, they saw that it had an e at the end of the word, so they thought, oh, it must be feminine. No, uh, le mirage spartiat. Now, in English, a mirage... I just uh, read a review of a book by an American using the word. I think normally has the primary sense of it seems to be the case, but actually it's not. So it's a false perception. And uh, it's as if you're looking at um, a stick in a jug of water. Actually, the stick is completely straight. Look at it, you have an optical illusion that it is bent. That is one sense of mirage, a distortion of something that's really there. 
The other sense is you're driving along on a hot, dusty road. I did this once in California. I drove for about 100 miles on such a road. And in front of you, it looks like a lake. You're going along and you seem to be driving through a lake of water. Actually, there's no water there whatsoever. And Mirage has that sense. So it's pure fiction, uh, fake news, as perhaps a certain POTUS might uh, refer to it. So the riddle of Sparta, the enigma of Sparta, the mystery of Sparta, is partly due, significantly due, to the nature of the evidence, which presents us with a combination of that which is there but is distorted, that which is not there at all but which is made up. So for us historians, it's actually very difficult to penetrate the um, mirage. I would say it's almost impossible. And one reason I did my doctorate in Oxford, uh, sadly we all make mistakes, but you have to start somewhere. <laughs> and I've seen the light since shining in the east. At any rate, um, I did a doctorate trying exactly to line up, match up, confront and, if you like, contradict the mirage with the archaeological evidence. And the point about the archaeological evidence is that it's direct. It has a story to tell, but you have to make it tell that story. Famously, it said, the spade can never lie, to which someone replied, that's because it can't speak. <laughs> and, and that's true. We archaeologists make the material. But So you've got this authentic, contemporary, real, not fake, material evidence. The trouble is we've got really relatively very little, and what we have is skewed. Not from settlement, very little from graves, mainly from sanctuaries, that is, um, religious spaces where... Spartans and others uh, made offerings to their gods, goddesses, heroes and heroines. So that gives you one side, a very important side. Spartans were massively religious, or you might say superstitious, but it's only a partial picture. On the screen I've used as my title slide the tondo, that's the bowl, the inner bit of a drinking cup, a, a kilix in, in Greek, so a, a kind of chalice, a kind of goblet, and it shows you a characteristically Spartan scene, namely a boar hunt on foot, face to face, though in this case the boar's back is to the human hunters. Today the boar is hunted. Uh, it is hunted at a great distance with high-velocity rifles. I believe certain French people are particularly keen on this kind of uh, activity. Well, if you did it in ancient Greece, you risked life and limb. Uh, boars are exceptionally um, fierce uh, creatures, and they're heavy and they're fast, uh, and you're taking a great risk. I'll come back to it in one other connection, but here I want to focus on the masculinity of this scene. On the left, I hope you can see clearly enough, is a beardless youth. On the right is an adult male signified the fact that he's adult by his beard. And so you're in a, a relationship of um, age difference and possibly hinting, I don't know, the, the painter may not have had this in mind at all, but a pairing relationship of that nature, possibly sexual, certainly educational, was built into the Spartans' unique form of education. 
Unique in two senses. Only the Spartans had a public education system at all, and only the Spartans built what, well, the ancient Greek word pederasty means literally love of a boy by an adult. It doesn't carry the negative connotations that it would in our English language. And it may be that this is what's being hinted at. At any rate, this was a manhood test. Spartans, uh, once they became fully admitted adult Spartans, member of the army, they dined in messes and they were required to eat communally every evening, the evening meal together, out in the open uh, every evening. Under cover, of course, if it was raining and so on. But nevertheless, not within one building, but lots and lots of tables, as it were, set out over a long spot. Rather like the Royal Jubilee or something like that, those sort of street parties, you see. That's what the Spartans did every evening. Well, um, there were three reasons why a Spartan might legitimately not attend once in a while, very exceptionally, not attend the evening meal, which otherwise he would be required to do. And one of them was precisely when you're off hunting wild boar. And as I say, it's a manhood test. If you come back alive, not bad. But if you come back also with the boar meat, then you add that to the mess meal of your immediate messmates the fare of which was so awful, this is of course part of the myth, that a visiting Sybarite, a Greek from Sybaris, we get, get our word Sybarite because they were supposed to have lived high on the, oh, it's a terrible pun coming, high on the hog. At any rate, um, they, uh, a visiting Sybarite came to Sparta, he was dined, and um, afterwards he said, now I know why the Spartans are so keen to die. And this is the sort of joke that non-Spartan... If you're Irish, you know what Kerryman jokes are. Well, the, the equivalent is non-Spartans making up jokes uh, about Spartans. and That was one of them. So underneath, um, interestingly, tunny fish, tuna, thunos is a Greek word, the origin ultimately of tuna, tunny. And the Spartans, in fact, lived quite a long way from the sea, about 25 miles. I'll show you a map um, shortly. And so this is quite interesting that the painter thought that he would paint two kinds of special foods that the Spartans might occasionally eat. Why is the pot whole? I don't know if any of you have thought of this. You go to the British Museum and you see whole pots, not shattered fragments, because it comes from a tomb. And not from any tomb in Sparta. As I say, the very few tombs in Sparta have been found, and not many of them contain really interesting grave goods. But this was found in, in Italy. The, the Etruscans are very keen on importing Greek pots like these. This is of the later 6th century BC. We're in the 540s, roughly, that sort of time. So 2,500-odd years ago. Right, hoping that this uh, works... Yeah. So I begin with um, the eastern end of the Mediterranean and with what's sometimes called the Greek heartland or Old Greece. And that's so called because from about 750 onwards, Greeks expanded. They uh, created what eventually was called a diaspora, which means a scattering of Greeks all around the Aegean. 
and all round then the Mediterranean, pretty much, and then all round the Black Sea up to the northeast here. And Plato, in one of his dialogues, says that we Greeks, we live like frogs or ants around the pond. He meant two ponds, the Mediterranean, the uh, Black Sea. And this shows you if this also works. Yeah. Well, here is the Peloponnese. I'm going to show you a more detailed version of this shortly. There's Sparta on the river Evrotas, Eurotas. There's the port of Githion. That's where the fishermen could have caught those tunny fish and brought them up by mule, by ox, cart up to Sparta. Very laborious, about 25 miles. This is the southwest of the Peloponnese. This is sometimes called Laconia. That's Messenia. And the Spartans conquered and controlled roughly half, just a bit under half, two-fifths of the Peloponnese. That was their basic city. And um, Athens is up here just to tell you the two poles of opposition. Very often Sparta was seen as the antithesis of Athens and uh, vice versa. So, as I say, this is a little more close-up of a map, and there's Laconia mentioned. And the key feature of, uh, the two key features, really, of this terrain, Sparta's own territory down in the southern Peloponnesus, Peloponnese, are mountains running here and here, the Parnon Range, the Teigatos Range. There's the Avrodas. This is the Riverine Valley of the Eurotas. And there's a Riverine Valley called the Pamisos River. Over there. So Sparta has exceptionally large amounts of good, fertile agricultural land, but travelling around within its territory is made extremely difficult by these mountain barriers. So it's in order to get to there, you have to go up and round. You can't just go across there. That arrow is a terrifically optimistic uh, sort of thing. And the best way to getting up here is go up the Eurotas Valley and then across there. And over here, some of you may have been to Monemvasia. It's round about there. Well, that's quite easy to get to, but then it's difficult to get down there. It's very difficult to get down here. Big mountain chain going all the way almost to the bottom. So I mentioned Taigatos. If you've been to Sparta and height of summer and it's about four o'clock and you think, well, it won't get dark yet, and suddenly you're in gloom. Well, the reason is the sun sinks behind that mountain range, which goes up to over 8,000 feet, 2,404 metres. And it's exceptionally beautiful. There's always snow. Uh, there's always some snow right on the Peak District. This, of course, is a winter shot, hence the large amount of snow. And I chose this image because, um, it, coincidentally as it happens, it's taken from an area where very recently a palace has been discovered and excavated, prehistoric, late Bronze Age, what we historians and archaeologists called the Mycenaean period. And it was often wondered, you know, where is the real equivalent of the fictional palace of Menelaos in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey? People looked for it, ever couldn't find it, and finally it's been found in this area here. But I chose it not just because of that, but you've got two eras represented here, at least, because in the front is, of course, a Byzantine um, church. 
And Sparta, Laconia is uh, famous for, especially the Marni, for its uh, extant and still used, uh, originally Byzantine. What do we mean by Byzantine? Between the foundation of uh, Constantinople, which was on May the 11th, 3.30, so had this lecture been 18 days earlier, I could have said, today is a really happy day. It's when Byzantium became um, Constantinople. But it ended in 1453, May 29th. That is the uh, anniversary we, we mention uh, today. So I'm going to now illustrate Spartan life with uh, a number of snapshots. But before I go any further, I must mention that one of the legacies, we, we historians are very interested in the extent to which the ancient world, in our case, it might be the Byzantine world in another case, still influences, lives on, has an impact on our way of seeing the world and talking about the world. Well, as it happens, the Spartans have legated, have given to us, bequeathed to us, not one, not two, but three English words, if I can call them English. One is Spartan, and an adjective meaning austere, self-denying, military, uh, tough, uh, enduring, resistant. Secondly, laconic, and it's one of the peculiarities of this part of the world that the Spartans didn't only call themselves Spartans. They also called themselves by a name meaning people from this part of the world, Lacedaemonians. Lacedaemon was also the name for the city of Sparta. Sparta was only a geographical term, not a political term. So as we say Westminster, well, that's just a part of London, but we also say Westminster does, meaning Parliament does something. Well, in the same way, the Spartans used this word Lacedaemon. Secondly, laconic, and we mean by that the sort of clipped military-style speech, minimalist, that um, the Spartans were famous for. One example, um, power from the north of Greece is threatening to uh, invade Sparta. And the diktat, it, they're being asked, you know, give in without fighting. And the message goes something like, if we invade your territory we will destroy Sparta. Spartans returned one word, if. <laughs> now, my prop has been removed. I've come along with um, two props. Now, you might think this is quite innocent. The Greek down here says molon labe, and it's what allegedly Leonidas, Leonidas, Leonidas replied to Xerxes, Emperor Xerxes, who demanded that he lay down his arms and surrender at the Mopili. I'll come back to that later. He replied with characteristic Spartan terseness, two words, molon labe. Come and get them. We have to say at least four in English. Come and get them yourself. 
And Leonidas used the familiar plural. As you probably know, Greek is one of those languages that has a formal and an informal um, plural, second singular, second plural in uh, um, Greek terms. So he insultingly spoke to the emperor as if he was uh, another Greek, you know, a mate uh, or um, somebody he despised. So come and get them. And if you go to America, you discover that the Second Amendment is something that some Americans get extremely uh, excited about. And it's to do with, actually, if you read the Second Amendment, it talks about raising a militia. I don't think that happens very often in America today. And then it says, right to bear arms. That's what uh, people cling on to at whatever cost. And... If you're a member of a gun club, if you go online, you can find this out. Uh, it might be that you've chosen as your slogan precisely that, those two words, Molo and Labby. I was giving a talk in Chicago about the Spartan um, legacy tradition, and um, someone told me about it. I hadn't known about it before. Um, I found it deeply shocking, but then I'm a, you know, a sensitive, wimpish um, <laughs> Western uh, liberal intellectual, so what do I know? I'm, I am also an honorary citizen of Sparta, that's true, and I was made one just before my 60th birthday. And in ancient Sparta, you were required to do military service up to the age of 60, a terrifying thought. And anyway, people said, so, ah, oh, right, you're finally going to be caught, are you? Because I was too young to do military service um, in this country. And I said, um, well, fortunately, it is honorary citizenship as opposed to real. At any rate, on the left is a real, um, a version of um, a real, what an ancient Laconian, Lacedaemonian hoplite might have looked like. And I put it that way because this actually comes from Messenia. Do you remember that bit on the west, not from the east where Sparta is? From a sanctuary, so it's a dedication, and a sanctuary of Apollo. And Apollo was one of the major gods that the Spartans worshipped. But not only the Spartans. Now, I've mentioned, or I haven't mentioned, I'm about to mention, what was the third word that we in English have adopted from the ancient? It's helot. And probably not many of you use it in everyday speech, but nevertheless, you'll find it in the OED. And it means an underclass person, a subordinated, serf-like uh, worker. Well, in the territory of the Spartans, there are three types of population. The Spartans themselves, they live in Sparta. They don't live dispersed, except when temporarily they're out hunting and they might spend a night in a uh, village outside, uh, you know, just to, before they get back uh, to Sparta. Secondly, and now this is the interesting group that's produced that um, figurine, the perioikoi, Greek for dwellers roundabout. They're free, but they have no political rights in Sparta. So they're subjects of the Spartans within the Spartan state. They have their own communities, you might say local government, but they don't have any say in Spartan foreign or domestic policy of the state as a whole. And they're obliged to pay taxes and they're obliged to perform military service as and when required, whether as here, hoplite, heavy infantry, or cavalry. And the main thing really is that they're free. They're personally free. They're not enslaved, which was the condition of the majority of the population of the state of Sparta, who were helots. And helots means captives. 
So it refers first of all to how the Spartans made them helots by conquering them and enslaving them and keeping them on the lands where they themselves had lived freely before the conquest and working the lands now for the Spartans. And it also symbolises the nature of the relationship between the Spartans and the Helots, who, though Greek, though they worshipped the same gods as the Spartans, spoke the same language and dialect as the Spartans, nevertheless they're permanently unfree. So the Spartans reminded them of that. Every year they declared war on them. Spartans are very religious, So if you commit homicide, you incur pollution. That's bad. Um, You might, if you don't free yourself of it, eventually go to a bad end sooner than you would have um, done otherwise. But if you declare war, as the Spartans did, as you know, if, for example, I were to be called up and go and fight in Afghanistan and I kill an Afghan, that's normally not considered murder. It's homicide, but it's not murder. In the same way, if a Spartan killed a helot, male or female, for whatever reason, he would not be, normally it would be a he, uh, considered polluted. And that was terribly important. The Spartans were very frightened of, as most Greeks were, um, the pollution that came from doing something sinful, something that would anger a god or the gods generally. So... Spartans, it's been said, lived on top of a perpetual volcano um, that was liable to erupt, and it actually did erupt several times. So helots did periodically revolt, and eventually one group of them revolted successfully. But that's really another story we can talk about another time. Here is a dedication, the helmet with a horsehair crest covering most of the face. You can only just see, you can't hear much, uh, you can speak, but um, really it's just sight. And it depends on your being in a phalanx formation, depending on the men on either side of you or in front and back of you. He's got a breastplate, bronze, to Hearts strapped at the shoulder, terrific protection down to the abdomen, but below vulnerability. He wears a kind of kilt, and you can perhaps see the Greek key meander rather beautifully embroidered on this. This is dress uniform. This is probably not what they would wear on an everyday basis to fight. He wears greaves, shin guards, in other words, as footballers wear, and then Behind him, you may be able to see a, an evanescent leg of a creature other than himself. It's in fact a dog's leg, and in fact originally he had his hunting hound represented with him when he dedicated this to Apollo. And one of the points of this uh, little disquisition is that he's not a Spartan. The guy who dedicated this, the guy represented, is one of the perioikoi, privileged members of whom like to think of themselves as Spartans, as as like members of the master race, because at least they weren't helots, and Sparta was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful state in all Greece. So it's sort of like, say you're a docker in Glasgow in the uh, 19th century, you're living in the second biggest city in the British Empire. You may be poor and suffering, you're living in the gorbals, but you're part of the British Empire. And so in the same way, I think Perioikoi identified with their Spartan masters in this way.
Now I brought along my other prop, and I, I bought this in the shop just upstairs, so um, I'm not sure whether to give it to my six-year-old grandson. I think probably not. I don't want to encourage him to be too Spartan. Anyway, on the right, uh, another offering. You can see it's in pretty good condition. And look at his helmet, just like the other guy, minus its crest. It's got a full beard, masculine. It's wearing a breastplate. But two things are different uh, in the accoutrements from the guy on your left. One, he has a strap you may see going across his chest. Well, if I were to turn that round and show you the back, it is a strap holding up a quiver full of arrows. Come down below his waist, and you may notice that the artist has deliberately accentuated his masculinity, I mean his genitals, just to make the very masculine guy. And you possibly can't see, but it's a lion skin. So hoplites, heavy-armed infantry, didn't go into battle wearing lion skins. Uh, but Heracles, in Latin Hercules, who killed the Nemean lion. Nemea is up in the northeast Peloponnese, one of his 12 labors. He wore ever after a lion skin, and he was regarded by the Spartans as part of their myth-making, their genealogy, as the ultimate ancestor of the two royal families, who at one generation produced twins such that the royal line bifurcated so that Sparta uniquely in, in all Greece had two kings still, even after all the other elements of republican um, political decision-making, a senate, uh, an assembly, had come into being. They still had two kings. They also had an aristocracy. Despite the uh, ideology of egalitarianism, you know, you wear the same clothes, you eat the same food, you fight looking pretty much exactly like everybody else in the phalanx, despite that, they still had aristocratic families who were conscious of being aristocratic. And one way in which they marked themselves out was to call themselves descendants of Heracles. In other words, buying into the same ideology as the two Spartan royal families. Now, a much, much later source, whether this is accurate or not, if only we knew, said that one distinctive feature of the way the Spartans represented their gods was that they represented all of them in armour. And that, of course, is utterly appropriate if you think Sparta was a very military society where the gods must reflect what humans think to be the most important values, namely bravery in warfare. Well, think about it. Aphrodite, uh, if any of you remember your uh, Homer's Iliad, not the most sort of vigorously masculine type of god uh, in the entire uh, Olympian pantheon. When she gets a tiny scratch, she's um, just off the main part of the battle, she shrieks and howls. Of course, she can't be killed because she's immortal. So she's escorted off the battlefield. Well, even Aphrodite in Sparta was represented as if she were a warrior goddess. The real warrior goddess was, of course, not Aphrodite, uh, but Athena, 
And Athena was indeed Sparta's patron god, as she was Athens's patron goddess. And Athena famously was born from her father's head, Zeus, not born, as we say, through the usual channels. And she was always represented in full male armour with a particular kind of breastplate. And she never was conquered, subdued by a man. In other words, she remained a perpetual virgin all her life, as indeed did Artemis, another goddess that the Spartans were particularly keen on. So the two main female goddesses that the Spartan males particularly were the two toughest who resisted males, the two most like men, in other words, uh, in the pantheon. So, I've introduced the female half of um, the Spartan race. And I use the word race partly as a pun, because when this was found, actually in what's now southern Albania, she was automatically thought to be running. Picking up her little um, tunic, um, the Greek word kitoniskos means a small kiton, which was peculiarly Spartan. She has one breast bare, and an ancient source tells us that there was indeed a race in which Spartan, actually virgins, so young girls, they up to the age of about 16, 17, 18, would compete. So people automatically thought, oh, well, here's a Spartan girl, because it was made in a Spartan workshop, and it must be uh, a representation of that race or something like it. However, as Roger Bannister would not be the uh, last to confess, if you look behind you when you're running, you run the risk of somebody coming up behind you and overtaking you, and it's very difficult to recover. If, on the other hand, you are dancing and you're looking back to one of your fellow dancers in a round dance, then this is a perfectly natural manoeuvre. Alternatively, you could say the artist, for purely aesthetic reasons, wanted a three-quarter profile, and that's how he did it. But at any rate, look down, probably you can't see, but the back foot has a rivet in it, a, a kind of nail. So in other words, originally, she's not a freestanding figure. She was nailed to the rim of a large bronze cauldron. I'm going to show you an example of the bronze cauldrons the Spartans, the perioikoi probably, made in Sparta. And it's simply huge. Well, this will have been quite big. And they're used, as we'll see shortly, for a particular social uh, function. So there is um, our dancing, is it, or running, is it, uh, maiden, now in the British Museum, as is Heracles, the Hercules I showed you on the previous slide. Both of them are casual finds, sporadic, they're called, not excavated in regular excavations from a known site. They come on the market, they're bought, they're given to a museum, in this case the British Museum. So here we have um, the hugest kratia, which means a mixing bowl. Those of you who've been to Greece will know that the modern Greek for wine, the informal word, is krasi. Well, that is a direct lineal descendant from the Greek word kratia, which is related to krasis, which means mixture. The formal 
ancient Greek word and the formal modern Greek word is oinos. And that's the same as weenum. The Greek w digamma drops out, so it's really oinos. And that weenum, they're directly related to Indo-European words for wine. Greeks typically did not drink their wine neat. They thought it was barbaric, literally. In other words, non-Greeks might drink their wine uh, unmixed. That's typical, isn't it, of barbarians who are inferior. They don't speak our language. They don't share our customs. They're unsophisticated, crude, and in this case, uh, alcoholic. And so um, a Greek would typically mix his uh, mainly drinking parties for respectable persons. Uh, adult male citizens were for males. Um, they would mix them roughly two to one. There's a famous wine in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, which was so strong that it had to be mixed 20 parts water to one part wine. And that was, of course, the wine that Odysseus gave to the Kuklops, the Kuklos Circle Ops Eye, the Cyclops, on uh, his island. This is from a grave, that's why it's so well preserved, though it was originally found in considerably worse condition than you see it here. In Burgundy, Vix is on the Seine in Burgundy. How did it get from the Greek workshop in which it was made, eventually across the Mediterranean to the mouth of the Rhone? Marseille is very near the mouth of the Rhone up the Rhone until it reaches the Sone, and then the Sone is the link between the Rhone and the Seine, and it eventually ends up at Vix, and it's now in the local museum of Châtillon-sur-Seine. Well, it's over five feet high, it holds 318, I believe, gallons, and it's found in a non-Greek, um, a princess's grave, and she belongs to the cultural horizon that the specialists call the Hallstatt era of Celtic uh, France. And around the um, neck is a classically Greek hoplite, heavy. You see the one in the middle? I've put that there deliberately, of course, to show you what a hoplite holding his one-metre-wide shield, two handles on the inside. His sex is again shown, you know, not sensible, if you think about it, in actual battle, but it's making a point. And um, this is a chariot scene, so it could be, insofar as it's realistic, it could be a burial of some great heroic warrior. And in the grave was indeed found a Celtic chariot. So, I mean, they possibly even fought from chariots in those days. Greeks had long since ceased, despite Homer. They didn't actually fight with chariots. They might have used them as taxis, but they didn't actually fight from them. And um, on the very top, though you can't see that, uh, was a lid. And the lid is crowned, the handle, of a clothed woman, demure. So sort of a woman, rather like Athena, if you like, presiding over a male scene of warriors and so on. Well, there's a bit of an argument amongst art historians and archaeologists. Where exactly was this made? Some think a workshop in southern Italy. Well, okay, there were Greeks there. They did make nice bronze things and so on. But there's one clue, which is the figures in the frieze were detachable. 
so that they had, when the vase basis had been created, had to be nailed on in the right order, in the right position, in order to enable the eventual assembler of this vase, the assemblers perhaps, to get it right, to put the right bit of the detachable frieze in the right place, the craftsman who made the thing scratched on the neck letters of the Greek alphabet and scratched on the corresponding bits that were going to be attached, the corresponding letter. So the alphabet, this is one way in which Greeks differentiated itself themselves from each other. They didn't have the same way of writing the same letters. In fact, they didn't have the same letters entirely. Some uh, Greek cities' alphabet was only 24 letters. Other Greeks had an alphabet of 28. At any rate, the letter forms are thought to be distinctively Spartan. Uh, I'm cutting a long story short here, but it's probably the case. This was made in Sparta, transported down to the mouth of the Erotas at uh, near Githion, taken from Githion round the very nasty um, peninsula, the Marni Peninsula, round and then up eventually to southern France and then up to uh, Burgundy, which is where very appropriately this ended up because Kratia, wine, Burgundy. Um, it's thought, I've argued, that it was the Greeks. Some people have said, no, no, it was the Etruscans. But anyway, I'm going with the Greeks who introduced the grapevine to southern France. And so we ultimately owe the Greeks who did that. If you're a fan of Burgundy, a wine, that's uh, where it all comes from. Probably back in the 7th or 6th century BC, BCE. Now, um, running up to the last series of um, slides, I move back to where I mentioned before, Leonidas, Leonidas, as the modern Greeks say, or uh, Leonidas, as the Americans say. I, my one credit in a movie was uh, for the movie 300. I take no credit for the credit. But um, I was asked, how do you pronounce L-E-O-N-I-D-A-S? And I said, go with the modern Greek. It's nice neither British English nor American English, it's Greek, uh, Greek, Leonidas. Of course, they went for Leonidas. And in right, <laughs> this was excavated in a debris from the a Spartan Acropolis, what passes for an Acropolis in Sparta, it's not very high. And um, stuff had come down from the top, so there was a sanctuary on the top, and it was dedicated, of course, to Athena, city holding Athena. And in the debris was found this, in more than one bit, it's been uh, restored. And, of course, you can see the helmet crest has actually been filled in with modern material. It's from uh, Parian, Parian, Paros, the island of Paros in the Cyclades, marble. So it's not local marble. It's particularly fine marble, and it's particularly finely worked. So this is not just any ordinary um, piece of work, but for some special occasion or some special place. Well, the Greek workman, as soon as this was unearthed, Leonidas, he said, and that name has stuck. However, the real Leonidas, Leonidas, whatever, died in 480. 
Would there have been a commemorative statue for him in his lifetime? No, and yet this is probably before 480. Would, it been, uh, would the Spartans have set up a statue of this kind for him after his death? Well, no. No Greeks did that. The Spartans, some years later, set up two much smaller bronze statues to commemorate the man who was in charge of the Greek forces at the Battle of Plataea. This is Pausanias, Pausanias, Pausanias. But so for all these reasons, it can't be. Leonidas, it can't be a representation of him. Moreover, he's not freestanding. Originally, he was part of a group, and that group would have been attached to a temple, and so he's probably either a god or, uh, equally likely, a hero. But there is one thing about him that is uniquely Spartan. I don't know if anybody spotted this. What does he not have there? doesn't have a moustache has a full beard, and he's got wonderful um, decoration of wild boar on his uh, cheek pieces and ram on the other side. So very fierce animals. This is all masculine pugnacity. But he doesn't have a moustache, and it is a fact that the Spartan chief officials, when they came into office every year, they changed the top five, issued a pronouncement to all Spartans, which was shave your moustaches and obey the laws. The two going together. Being a Spartan, being obedient, being different, you shave your moustache. Well, that Leonidas has had its own life history subsequently. In the mid-1950s, a bunch of American Greeks from this region clubbed together to build this memorial opposite the hill where, in fact, Leonidas died in August 480 BC. Extremely hot in the summer, over 40 degrees, and... Leonidas went to resist the uh, Persian invasion with a picked 300 Spartans, of whom all but two died. It's often said all 300 died at Thermopylae. They didn't. 298 of the 300 died. Leonidas died. So 299 Spartans died out of 301. And that, I mean, it's a trivial example, but that's fact as opposed to myth. Uh, the mirage is what I started with. And then Another image, um, more ancient but also more artistic, uh, featuring the aforementioned Leonidas, naked, completely, starkers, and um, in ancient Greek, gumnos, meant both unarmed, which he's not, and stark naked, which he is. Our word gym, gymnasium, comes from the ancient Greek exercise ground, stark naked, men only. Well, the artist of this um, was Napoleon's court painter, Jacques-Louis David. And David is what we would today call gay. And he was particularly interested in certain portions of young uh, male person's anatomy. But he was also, unlike Napoleon, who thought the Spartans who'd lost the Battle of Thermopylae were a bunch of losers, he admired the Spartans, I suspect partly because of what I mentioned to you earlier, pederasty, as 
integral to the Spartan education and lifestyle. He probably thought that was better than the kind of discrimination, negativity, the homophobia that has been the homosexuals' fate for most of their uh, Western post-Christian history. But for us, interested in the myth, the legend, um, I direct your attention away from this suggestively placed scabbard to what's going on up here, a rock. Well, this guy is nailing up anachronistically, because, of course, the epigram is after Leonidas's death, um, the famous go tell the Spartans stranger passing by that here obedient to their laws, we lie. And that's um, credited to Simonides, Simonides, who came from the island of Chaos, or Kea, not far from Athens today, and of course is post-480 BC. Penultimate slide, an actual, either Spartan or Perioikic, shield-facing. From a well in the Agora Civic Centre of Athens, excavated by the American School of Classical Studies in the 1930s, how come a Spartan or Perioikic shield ended up in the Agora of Athens? Because once it had been carried by either a Spartan or a Perioikos, who had been in a small detachment on a little island off the west coast of the Peloponnese during the Great Peloponnesian War. The Persian War, heroic, Greeks resist the Persians. The Peloponnesian War, very bad, a kind of protracted civil war among Greeks, a really awful generation-long affair. This was taken back with the um, person who had held it because the survivors were taken back to Athens as hostages and they, they worked. The Spartans stopped invading the land of Athens as soon as these 292 hostages were imprisoned in public view uh, in the centre of uh, Athens. Well, the shields were nailed up on a temple and the Athenians, just to make it absolutely clear how um, insulting they were being to the Spartans, had punched on probably every one of the shields, this is only the one that survives, uh, a message. And it goes, Athenians, that's the top line, from, and then Lacedaemonion, literally from Spartans and Perioikoi, Ek, out of, and then Pylos is the nearest town to where this island was, where the garrison had been defeated and then um, made hostages. And so, to read it out in full, it's the Athenians have dedicated this to Athena, having taken it from the Spartans whom they defeated on the island of, in fact, Spacteria, near Pylos. So... It's one of the ironies that we don't have a Spartan shield from Sparta. Sparta, the most successful hoplite military state uh, of all time. We have it only from their worst enemies, uh, from a war which actually they eventually won. But at this point, they were doing rather badly. And so I end now with the other half of uh, the human race um, and Sparta, a, a Spartan woman, but not just any woman. This is a princess. 
She is, as she tells us herself, in her victory dedication for winning for the first time as a woman an Olympic crown, she owned, she trained racehorses who won the four-horse chariot race at Olympia in uh, 396 BC. I, she says, kyniska, which means little puppy or little bitch, uh, victorious with the chariot of swift-footed horses, have erected this statue. I declare myself the only woman in all Hellas. Hellas is how the Greeks referred to the pale of Greek settlement. Wherever Greeks were is Hellas to have won this, and it was an olive wreath crown, uh, and only one, there were, there were no silver medals or bronze medals, you, you got just the olive wreath, symbolic, uh, not itself valuable. There is, though, a backstory, and it's this. She was, as she says, uh, the daughter and sister of, in fact, a king, and then uh, one of these kings is a half-brother, one is a full-brother. Well, her full-brother, Agisilas II, ruled Sparta 40 years, most powerful Spartan, one of the most powerful Greeks at the time when she is winning this Olympic victory. A biographer of Agisilas called Xenophon, Athenian, exile, pro-Spartan, he's one of those pro-Spartan, wildly pro-Spartan Athenians, wrote a biography, it's really an encomium, uh, posthumous, of Agesilaus. And in it he says that it was Agesilaus's idea that Kyniska should rear horses with the view ultimately of winning an Olympic victory. Why was it his idea to demonstrate that mere racehorses, even a woman can win? A, an Olympic victory with them, the real horses, you've, you're getting it, you remember the Vix Crater, they're war horses, and war is a man's business. And the Greek for bravery or courage was andraia, which means literally virility or manliness. Women, by definition, could not be brave, courageous in the accepted ideal manner of a warrior fighting for his country in battle. So this is a mixed message uh, that I leave you with, and I think that's quite appropriate. Uh, and if you have been listening, thank you very much. <laughs>